0: I would like to say what a pleasure it is to be here and how grieved I am to be leaving uh, this evening and making such a very short stop. I'd love to stay and enjoy your annual conference. Uh, hope you'll forgive me if I run away. Now before we uh, consider the teaching of scripture, let's pray together. And I would like to use a prayer written by Calvin in the early 16th century. Heavenly Father, In your Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit, and grant us that reverence and humility, without which no one can understand your truth. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, my topic this afternoon is Your Mind Matters the importance of developing a Christian mind. I wonder if you know the story of the two ladies who were having a chat in the supermarket one day when one said to the other, what's the matter with you? You look so worried. Oh, I am, said her friend. I keep thinking about the world situation. Well, the other said, you want to take things more philosophically and stop thinking. (laughs) It's rather a delicious idea that the way to become more philosophical is to do less thinking. But those two ladies were expressing the mood the modern mood which has given birth to two uh, ugly twins mindlessness on the other on the one hand and meaninglessness on the other. And ever against these secular trends you and I as followers of the Lord Jesus want to set 1st Corinthians chapter 14 and verse 20. It's rather amusing in a way that Paul begins that statement with the words stop thinking. But it doesn't end there. He says, stop thinking like babies. In evil, you can be as innocent and ignorant as a little child. But in your thinking, he says, for heaven's sake, grow up. So there is a command to all of us to develop our minds and to use our minds. And I want to begin by asking, why? Why does our mind matter? Why is it important for Christian people to use their minds? Well, I give you three reasons. First, a proper use of our mind glorifies our Creator. It acknowledges that our Creator is a rational God who made us rational beings in his own image and who has given us in nature and in Scripture a double rational revelation of himself. We accept the statement made by Sir Francis Bacon, the 17th century uh, philosopher and lawyer, incidentally a statement which Darwin uh, borrowed and put on the flyleaf of the origin of species, the statement is that God has written two books and not one. He has written the book of his works, which we call nature, and the book of his words, which we call scripture. In the first, nature, he has revealed his glory, The heavens declare the glory of God and the earth is full of his glory. But in the second scripture he has revealed his grace and the way of salvation by grace alone in Christ alone through faith alone. So there is a very important parallel between uh, theology on the one hand and science on the other. Science is the attempt to understand and systematize what God has revealed in nature. And theology is an attempt to understand and systematize what God has revealed in Scripture. Both of them are investigations into divine revelation. They are explorations into the mind of God. And in both, as the uh, astronomer Johann Kepler said at the beginning too of the 17th century, in both of them we are thinking God's thoughts after him. As we study nature, as we study Scripture... We are thinking God's thoughts after him. So Bible study and nature study could go together. I myself feel fairly strongly about this because since I was a small boy I've been a fanatical bird watcher. And uh, I believe that every Christian should take up a branch of natural history. Might be astronomy or botany or geology or whatever. We ought to take a greater interest in nature, in the natural world because many of us Christians have a good doctrine of redemption but a bad doctrine of creation. But we should be interested in the wonderful works of his creation. So all scientific research is based on the convictions that the universe is an intelligible system. That there is a correspondence between the mind of the investigator and the data that are being investigated. And this correspondence is rationality. Einstein is reported as having said the only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. In other words, the only thing we can't understand is why it is that we can understand it. And it's not an accident that many of the pioneers of the scientific revolution were Christian people. They believed in the rationality of the universe. So that is the first reason why we should use our minds. It glorifies our creator. It acknowledges his rationality. Now secondly, a proper use of the mind enriches our Christian discipleship. I'm not now thinking of education and art and culture which enrich the quality of our human life. I'm thinking rather of our Christian discipleship in particular, no part of which is possible without the use of our minds and every part of which is facilitated and ennobled by the use of our minds. So that if we want to please Jesus Christ, our Lord, if we want to make progress in our spiritual pilgrimage, we must use our minds. And if we don't, we condemn ourselves to spiritual stagnation and perpetual immaturity. So I give you two examples of our discipleship being dependent on the use of our mind. One is faith, and the other is guidance. Take faith. It's amazing how many uh, Christians think that faith and reason are incompatible with one another. Do you know that there is no verse in scripture from beginning to end that sets reason and faith over against each other in contrast? No, we're told that uh, we walk by faith, not by sight. Faith and sight are contrasted, but not faith and reason. But what is faith? I wonder how you would define it. It's not a synonym for credulity. It's not a synonym for superstition. It's not what H. L. Mencken, the American critic of Christianity of a former generation, called an illogical belief in the occurrence of the improbable. Well, it's clever, it's witty, but it's inaccurate. That is not the meaning of faith. Faith is a reasoning trust. It's a trust that is based on reason. I wonder if you've come across Psalm 9, verse 10, which says, those who know your name put their trust in you. And they trust because of what they know. Those who know your name put their trust in you. We trust God because he's trustworthy. and The more we reflect on God, on his character, his covenant, his promises, the more our faith is drawn out from us. My second example is guidance. All of us want to know God's will for our lives. You do in particular at the threshold of your uh, professional life, whatever it's going to be when you graduate from uni. And you not only want to know God's will, but you're longing for divine guidance, that he will guide you, that you may understand his will. But there are too many people who regard the guidance of God as a convenient alternative to thought. They think of it as a device For saving them the bother of thinking. So they regard their mind as a kind of uh, television or computer screen and they expect God to flash onto the screen answers to their questions and solutions to their problems. Well of course God is free to do that if he pleases to do so but we have to assure one another that this is not God's normal way of guidance. No, God's normal way of guidance is through the mental processes which he has created and not in spite of them. Let me give you as an example, I think the most important verse on guidance in the whole of the Bible is uh, Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. It's a beautiful balance in Scripture. Verse 8 contains a threefold promise of God. I will instruct you. I will teach you the way you should go and I will counsel you with my eye upon you." That's a marvelous threefold promise, isn't it? But verse 9 adds a prohibition to the promise. Don't be like a horse or mule which lack understanding and whose mouth has to be held with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. In other words, God says, I will guide you. I promise I will guide you. But don't expect me to guide you as you guide horses and mules. Why not? For the elementary reason that you're not a horse or a mule. So don't behave one like one. And don't expect God to treat you like one. Horses and mules have a rudimentary brain. But they lack what the Bible calls understanding, intelligence or wisdom. So, because we were made rational beings in the image of God. And because... Excuse me a moment. You you do know that I'm in my 80s, don't you? So you'll treat me with sympathy if I lose my place. I'm not sure when you give a talk if you ever use your place, lose yours, but I frequently lose mine. So let's see if I can come back to where I was. We need to use the mind that God has given us because he will guide us, not like irrational creatures, but like the rational creatures we are who can think. So let me sum up this about faith and guidance. Indeed, in every aspect of discipleship, we must use our God-given intelligence. Our progress will be seriously impeded if we don't, but wonderfully facilitated if we do. So far I've suggested that the proper use of the mind glorifies our Creator, enriches our Christian life, and now thirdly, it strengthens our evangelistic witness. I believe, and I wonder if you agree, that one of the major reasons why many reject the gospel today is not because they perceive it to be false, but because they perceive it to be trivial. Of course it is right to simplify the gospel, it would be very foolish to complicate it. But to simplify it is one thing, to trivialize it is another. But then people are convinced that it isn't big enough for the complex and tragic world in which we live. Now the Apostles of Jesus did not make that mistake. On the contrary, they were not afraid to use their minds and they were not afraid to develop arguments in favor of of Christian truth. So in their ministry, in the apostolic ministry, apologetics and evangelism, that is defending the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, went hand in hand. And Paul once defined his ministry, 2 Corinthians 5.11, by the simple words, we persuade people. But You can't persuade people if you don't develop arguments. Now to be sure, the trust of the Apostle Paul was in the Holy Spirit. Paul knew perfectly well, as we do, that nobody can bring anybody else to Christ except through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alone illumines our minds and brings people to the knowledge of Christ. But the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. So he brings people to the knowledge of Christ not in spite of the evidence, but because of the evidence when he opens our mind to understand it. Wolfhard Pannenberg, who is a contemporary uh, German uh, theologian, has written it, I think, very well in these words. An otherwise unconvincing message cannot attain the power to convince simply by appealing to the Holy Spirit. The convincingness of the Christian message can stem only from its contents. And wherever this is not the case, the appeal to the Holy Spirit is no help at all to the preacher. If however the preacher desires to convince his audience's power of judgment, then the Holy Spirit becomes effective through his words and arguments. Argumentation and the operation of the Holy Spirit are not in competition with one another. In trusting in the Holy Spirit, Paul in no way spared himself thinking and arguing. I think that's well said. I wonder then if we could say about our evangelism what the Apostle Paul said to the procurator Festus when he said, what I'm saying to you, most excellent Festus, is true and reasonable. And it's important in our evangelism that we should be able to say the same thing to the person we're seeking to witness to win for Christ. The best example of the apostolic use of argument, I think, is in, uh, in Ephesus during the third missionary journey. Where it, it, we read about it in Acts chapter, seven, chapter 19. First, Paul proclaimed Christ in the synagogue. Then, when the Jewish people rejected the gospel he moved to a secular venue and rented a lecture hall known as the Hall of Tyrannus where we're told he lectured for two years every day at least one uh, version puts it every day from the 5th hour to the 10th that is from 11 o'clock in the morning to 4 o'clock in the afternoon when most of the Ephesians were enjoying their afternoon siesta Paul argued the gospel. Now, you're probably good at mathematics. A daily five hour lecture, shall we say six days a week for two years, is 3,120 hours of gospel argument. And I'm not surprised to read in the next verse all Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, the whole of the continent of Asia, but the whole of the Roman province of Asia, of which Ephesus was the capital. Everybody came up to Ephesus at some time during the year. They came up, as we would say, to do their Christmas shopping. They came up to watch a play in the great theater in Ephesus. They came up to uh, consult its uh, worldwide famous library, or they went to the temple of Diana of the Ephesians. There are many reasons that brought them to Ephesus. And while they were in Ephesus, one of the sights of the town was to listen to this Christian lecturer, Paul. He's on five hours every day. Not a measly half or three-quarters of an hour that I've been given. <laughs> he was on five hours every day. So people dropped in, they listened to the arguments, they believed, and they went back to their villages born again in Christ. So here, you see, is a, a strategy of city-center evangelism that we need to recover. I often pray that God will raise up in every university city and in every capital city in the world a church in which the gospel is faithfully and thoroughly expounded and defended and uh, proclaimed. Well, let me sum up where we've got to so far. Let's repent of any cult of mindlessness of which anybody here might be guilty. Let's repent of any residual intellectual laziness of which we may be guilty. It's a negative and destructive mindset. It insults God in whose image we have been made, it impoverishes us, and it weakens our testimony in the world. Whereas a proper use of the mind glorifies God, enriches us, and strengthens our witness in the world. So now let me move on to a second thing, I think we have time for this. We turn from the importance of our minds in general to the development of a Christian mind in particular. I expect you're familiar with that phrase, a Christian mind, but let me speak about it for a few moments. What is a Christian mind? Well we begin by clarifying what it is not. A Christian mind is not a mind that is thinking about specifically Christian or religious topics. It is rather a mind that is thinking even about the most secular topics from a Christian perspective. A Christian mind is not a mind that is preoccupied with churches and chapels and hymn books and prayer books and Bibles and bishops and other religious objects or persons. No, a Christian mind is a mind that is seeking the will of God in relation to everything, in relation to our home and job, our uni studies, our community, citizenship, our politics and economics, our North-South economic inequality, unemployment, human rights, the natural environment, and every other issue of social ethics. It was a man called Harry Blair Myers, an Anglican layman in my country, who first either invented or certainly popularized the expression, a Christian mind. So one of the best ways to grasp what a Christian mind is, is to see it operating within the framework of biblical history, past, present and future. The Bible thinks of history not so much in terms of the rise and fall of dynasties and empires and civilizations as secular history books do, but rather in terms of four great events which introduce four great epochs, namely The creation, the fall, the redemption in Christ Jesus, and fourthly, the consummation that is yet to come. I think all of you are very familiar with those four things. They create a kind of grid through which it is possible to filter all our thinking. We need to learn to think in the light of the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the uh, consummation. But because I understand you uh, often study uh, this particular thing, I thought I would skip it myself and come on to one of the main foundations for Christian thinking. There are actually two, and I want to concentrate on one. The two foundations on which all Christian thinking are based are the doctrine of God, on the one hand, and the doctrine of man, male and female, made in the image of God, on the other. So the reality of God, on the one hand, and the paradox of our humanness on the other. One or two of you may have been in uh, Macquarie, uh, what is it called, Christian Institute, Christian Studies Institute uh, the other day when I was speaking on the paradox of our humanness. That is our dignity as creatures made in the image of God and our depravity as sinners under the judgment of God. In other words, the uh, uh, the great joy or glory on the one hand of being a human being and the shame of it on the other because of our sin uh, under the judgment of God. So we need to keep the paradox of our humanness. But I want to concentrate on the other one which is the foundation, the reality of God. The Christian mind acknowledges God as the supreme and ultimate reality behind and beyond all phenomena the God-centeredness of the Bible. For the Bible is a book by God about God. The Bible has sometimes been called the autobiography of God because he's both the author and the subject. And the God-centeredness of the Bible, its recognition of God as creator, sustainer, Lord, Savior, Father, Judge, is basic to the Christian mind. The Christian mind is a godly mind. And the biblical view of goodness is primarily godliness. The Christian mind could never call good somebody who is ungodly. They may seek to love their neighbors themselves but if they don't love God with all their being then we cannot call them good. Goodness is godliness, God-centeredness. Now there are two corollaries from the God-centeredness of the Bible. The first is the meaning of wisdom and the second is the preeminence of humility. The first is the meaning of wisdom. I guess all of us would like to be thought wise. If I came up to you after the lecture and said to you, you're a wise old bird or a wise old owl, I think you would feel uh, flattered rather than insulted. And wisdom is a very prominent theme in the Bible. In addition to the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, we have the wisdom literature, the five books of wisdom, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, all about wisdom. I don't know if you know the little doggerel that goes, King David and King Solomon lived many, many lives with many, many concubines and many, many wives. But when old age o'ertook them with many, many qualms. King Solomon wrote the Proverbs and King David wrote the Psalms. (laughs) Well, it's not very good poetry, but it makes a point. Now, these wisdom books are all about what we in the 21st century call meaning. What does it mean to be a human being? And how does suffering and evil and injustice and love These things that we experience every day, how do they fit in with meaning in the universe? I think probably the book of Ecclesiastes is the best example. It's best known for its pessimistic refrain, which in the old authorized version went uh, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, but the Revised Standard Version well translates it meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. And Ecclesiastes demonstrates the futility of a human life that is imprisoned in the narrow confines of time and space. And in being confined or imprisoned in time and space, it then ignores the reality of God. Think of it like this with me. If reality is restricted to time, to the brief human lifespan with all its injustice and pain, beginning with birth and ending like the animals in death, then meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Or again, if reality is restricted by space, the human experience under the sun, you know that common expression in Ecclesiastes, under the sun, with no ultimate reference point above and beyond the sun, then everything is futile, a chasing after wind, meaningless, meaningless. So what the author of Ecclesiastes goes on to show is that only God can give meaning to life because only God can supply the missing dimensions. God adds eternity to time. You know all about eternity in Sydney. And God adds eternity to time, but he also adds transcendence to space. And that's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom. We don't even begin to be wise unless we are godly and reverence and love the Lord our God with all our being. So wisdom begins with an acknowledgement of the reality of God. Hence the tragedy of the spiritual vacuum in so many parts of the Western world today. And hence also the hostility of the Christian mind to secularism which denies the reality of God. I don't know if you know the name of Theodore Rozak, he was more famous, I think, in the 60s and 70s than in our day now. Uh, I guess he was a lapsed Roman Catholic. He came to be well known through a book of his in the 60s called The Making of a Counterculture. And he's written more books since. He bemoans what he calls the coca cola of the world. He goes on to say that we are suffering from a psychic claustrophobia within the scientific worldview in which the human spirit is cramped and cannot even breathe. He castigates science, by which I think he means pseudo-science, for its reductionist assault on human life, its arrogant claim to be able to explain everything. He criticizes this pseudo-science for its debunking spirit, its undoing of the mysteries, so that when science gets hold of something, there is no mystery left. And then he uses this amazing phrase, for a man who is not a Christian, he said, without transcendence, the person shrivels. So much for the meaning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now the second corollary of the reality of God is the preeminence of humility. Because the Christian mind is a godly mind, it exalts the virtue of Humility. The Christian mind is a humble mind. Because of the God-centeredness of the Bible, nothing is so obscene or vulgar as pride, and nothing is so attractive as humility. The best Old Testament example, without doubt, is Nebuchadnezzar, the emperor of Babylon. He was strutting like a peacock round the flat roof of his palace in Babylon, soliloquizing, talking to himself you remember what he said to himself is not this great Babylon which I have built by the might of my power and for the glory of my kingdom <coughs> you notice he claimed the kingdom the power and the glory for himself he precisely reversed the doxology that Jesus gave us at the end of the Lord's Prayer though he claimed the kingdom the power and the glory for himself So it's not surprising that while the words were still on his lips, the judgment of God fell upon him. He was deprived of his kingdom. He was driven from his palace. He lived like animals and ate like them. His body became wet with dew. His hair grew long like eagles' feathers. His nails like birds' claws. In other words, he went stark staring mad. And it was only later when he lifted his eyes to heaven and acknowledged that the Most High God rules in the kingdoms of men, that his sanity and his kingdom were simultaneously restored to him. For pride and madness go together, as do humility and reason. But let's move on from the Old Testament example of Nebuchadnezzar to the New Testament example of our Lord Jesus himself his example, and his teaching. We're told in Philippians 2 that although he shared the very essence of God, he did not regard equality with God a prize to be selfishly enjoyed. But he made himself nothing. He laid aside, emptied himself of his glory. He took the form of a servant. He humbled himself to serve. He became obedient unto death, even death on a cross and therefore God has highly exalted him. And then several times during his public ministry Jesus took a little child, put him in the midst and said if you want to be great you've got to humble yourself like a little child. I think at no point does the Christian mind clash more violently with the secular mind than in its insistence on humility. The wisdom of the world despises humility And even the ethnic religions don't particularly commend it. Western culture has imbibed more than it realizes of the power philosophy of Nietzsche, that great German philosopher that had such an influence on Hitler. Nietzsche dreamed of the emergence of a ruler race that he said would be tough, brash, masculine, overbearing. The ideal of Nietzsche was the superman, the übermensch, the ideal of jesus is the little child and there is no possibility of compromise between these two we have to choose now the followers of jesus are to choose humility the little the humility of the little child so the reality of god which i suggested was one of the two foundation stones of the christian life or the christian mind the reality of god is creator sustainer Ruler, Father, Savior, Lord, Judge, all these things. The reality of God gives the Christian mind its essential characteristic. The Christian mind refuses to honor anything that dishonors God. The Christian mind learns to evaluate everything according to whether it gives glory to God or withholds glory from God. Hence, wisdom is the fear of God and humility is the greatest virtue. Now there I think I will stop except for one thing and that is because I've been talking so much about the mind some of you are asking yourself whether we have any heart and emotion as well. So I wonder how many of you have read Chaim Potok's book uh, The Chosen or seen the movie? Anybody? Yeah. One. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Well it's a story about two Jewish youths who were brought up in Brooklyn during and after the Second World War. One was called Danny Saunders whose father was a strict Hasidic rabbi and the other was Rufin Malta whose father was a writer in the liberal Jewish tradition. And in the friendship between these two young men uh, the two Jewish traditions came into conflict. Throughout most of the movie and the book, Rabbi Saunders astonishing us astonishes us because he seems such a delightful and human being. He astonishes us that he never talks to his son Danny except when he's teaching him out of the Talmud. Instead, he maintains towards his son Danny a weird silence. And it's not until the end of the play or the movie that the mystery is explained. Rabbi Saunders says that God had blessed him with a brilliant son, a boy with a mind like a jewel. When Danny was only four years old, his father saw him reading a book. And while he watched him reading, he was frightened. Because, he says, Danny swallowed the book. Well, you could imagine a father being proud of a boy of four who could swallow books. But the point is that the book was about a poor Jew's sufferings. Yet Danny enjoyed the book. There was no soul in my four-year-old Daniel. There was only his mind. He was a mind in a body without a soul. So Rabbi Saunders cried to God, say, what have you done to me? A mind like this I need for a son? A heart I need for a son. A soul I need for a son. Compassion, righteousness, mercy, strength to suffer, carry pain. That I want for my son not a mind without a soul. So the rabbi followed an old Hasidic tradition and brought his boy up in silence. For then he said, in the silence between us, Danny began to hear the world crying. And in the final scene of reconciliation between the father and the son, Rabbi Saunders says that Danny had to learn through the wisdom and the pain of silence that a mind Without a heart is nothing. So we need a Christian mind, but we also need a Christian heart. The two together make a human being. Shall we pray together? (coughs) Let's reflect on Your Mind Matters. Let's ask ourselves whether we have neglected the mind that God has given us and whether perhaps we need to use our minds with greater discipline than in the past. And maybe too that we should develop a Christian mind. Our Heavenly Father, we desire to thank you and that with all our hearts that you have been pleased to create us in your own image and likeness. And we ask your forgiveness for times when we have not lived up to this ideal. We pray for ourselves and one another that you will enable us to be thinking Christians and feeling Christians we ask it for the glory of your great and worthy name Amen